Support for WVIK comes from Kathleen Collins at the Dragonfly in Bettendorf. Using both conventional and alternative counseling methods for empowerment to help create change for individuals and couples. More information is at KathleenCollinsCounseling.com. You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR. Welcome back to the Heartland Politics Show and Podcast, which is aired on and distributed by WVIK Quad Cities NPR. WVIK is the flagship public radio station in the Quad Cities region of northwestern Illinois and eastern Iowa. This is your host, Robin Johnson, and we've just capped another tumultuous week in American politics, which is occurring within perhaps the most tumultuous presidential campaign we've had in our country's history. Uh, To help... uh, me sort this out for our listeners this week. Uh, I have a very respected guest. I'm very thrilled to have him on. He's James Bennett, who's the senior editor of The Economist magazine, is the author of the very prestigious Lexington column, which I read every week. Uh, He's the first American to do so. James, thank you so much for uh, being on this week. Thanks a lot for having me on, Robin. Well, we start with with the ouster of Speaker uh, Kevin McCarthy, which um, is is just another uh, a, a really dramatic turn of events in our country from what's been going on. Um, what what do you uh, what's your analysis of this insofar as what what this is doing to the Republican Party? and our governing capabilities in a very crucial time with some very important issues on the table. Yeah, I mean, you know, we we kind of find ourselves a little bit off the map here, Robin, you know, maybe once again, but we seem to be constantly um, wandering into that territory on those old maps where it just sort of says there be monsters here and good luck figuring it out. Um, you know, a speaker has never been ousted like this in our nation's history. In some ways, you know, Kevin McCarthy was doomed, you know, and everybody was kind of waiting for this moment, I think it's fair to say. And there's the whole, you know, history now of the miscalculations and so forth that were made that put him in this perilous position at this crucial moment. But the reality is now, you know, the Republicans are at each other's throats in the House, um, pointing fingers at one another and trying to elect a new speaker. And the likelihood is a speaker who's less inclined um, by virtue of what he himself believes in his own politics 
to strike any kind of deal with the Democrats on the budget or on some of the really pressing issues that we're facing, emergency funding um, to deal with disaster relief, as well as uh, uh, Ukraine, the issue I'm really worried about, uh, um, and also less able to, even if they were inclined to strike a deal because of the reality of the politics on that side. So, um, and one has the sense that the White House which kind of sat back during this fight in the House, doesn't really have a plan either for, for how to navigate this strange off-the-map world we find ourselves in. So it, it feels quite perilous. And, you know, it, it, as you said, it's against the backdrop of this, you know, presidential campaign in which the Republican frontrunner this week has been sitting in a court in New York City uh, where a, a fraud trial is being conducted. It's just, it's a lot to, for any of us, I think, to kind of make sense of right now. Any of us, but also our ally, allies and adversaries around the world. I, you, you know, I, I'm sitting here thinking what Russia and China are thinking about this. And there are major adversaries around the world. Um, I, I it can cause you to lose some sleep thinking of of ways that they they may see weakness in in our whole political system and how dysfunctional it is and and who knows uh, provoke something. Honestly, Robin, I just think they're delighted. I, it's just all good for them. I happen to see uh, my colleague David Rennie, who's our Beijing bureau chief and writes our Chagwan column for The Economist, um, was uh, visiting U.S. this week, and he just said all of this stuff goes right onto state TV in China. It's like we're working for state the state propagandists at the moment with the way we're behaving here. It's all advertisements for what that government claims, which is that their system works, and our notions of democracy are, um, we're always hypocritical, and um, and are just profoundly flawed. Well, this this takes place again within within a, a major presidential election. We've been saying the last two have been perhaps the most important in our nation's history, and here we are again. They're all important, obviously, but um, I, I, you've written recently about the Republican debate, which um, I watched, and uh, the the irony of. The candidates, um, not only what they said, but how they said it, taking place at the Reagan Library, um, was was striking to me. But what what was your take on the debate overall? Uh, I know, like I say, you wrote about it, and uh, did anybody really, did any of the candidates that were there really kind of separate themselves from the pack? Is the clear alternative to Donald Trump? Not sufficiently, I don't think, Robin. I, I, I do continue to think that Nikki Haley distinguishes herself in these debates. Um, I think she's done a... Um, you can see that she's been out there doing town hall after town hall and answering a lot of questions. Um, and uh, she, you know, brings a degree of specificity on policy, I think, in addition to some pretty clever comebacks um, that you're not hearing as much from the candidates. But, you know, it's a fairly serious field. These aren't, you know, for the most part, these are experienced public servants, politicians of one sort or another, but they really have failed, I think, to figure out how to take on Donald Trump. They've been waiting for somebody else to do it, hanging back, 
waiting for the courts to eliminate this problem for them or something like that. And that was never going to happen. And the window, I think, is really closing. Um, I don't know what your sense is, you know, on the ground out there, whether anybody's really breaking through in, in Iowa. Uh, last time I was out there, I certainly wasn't getting that sense. It it it, it seems like that the, the, there might be a little bit of momentum for Haley, I think, just based on her debate performances. But it's it's... Is it enough? I mean, there's still time, I think, for a clear front runner, uh, not front runner, but a clear alternative to emerge. But um, it's, it, you know, we're going to be getting into the holiday season where a lot of the advertising is going to be muddled soon. So that's kind of what I, I'm seeing here. Um, I I continue to be struck by the issue of immigration, <clears throat> immigration in the Republican Party. Where Ronald Reagan, you know, uh, I remember when he first was running, everybody feared him as this arch conservative. And he came in and he wound up being a president who did compromise on some key issues. And immigration was one of them. The rhetoric on the Republican side just keeps getting more and more out there with um, on TV. We're seeing ads here about sending troops down to take on cartels and, and even shooting at at immigrants. Um, it, it, it seems a long ways from the Re Republican Party of Ronald Reagan. Yeah, I mean, he did achieve the last really landmark immigration reform, and it was honestly, though, Robin, it's the it's kind of the it it it, it, it to my mind, it's it was kind of the common sense deal that in theory is on the table today that I think most Americans want, which is enforcement plus a path to citizenship plus decent treatment for people and, and and embrace of of legal immigration that that is a formula that americans um i think by and large believe in but but um we've reached this point where you know the polarization is so intense if the other parties for it your party has to be against it so if the republicans want it enforcement the democrats are you know there's the news this morning that joe biden is building a chunk of of Donald Trump's wall. He has reversed himself and is building, I think the Wall Street Journal reported 20 miles of law of wall in Texas, which mm. I think is just a major kind of concession that, well, you know, maybe the other side had a point after all. It'll never be admitted that, never be framed that way. But I continue to believe that like there's an audience for somebody who's willing to say that, which is like, yeah, the other guy, you know, I think he's mostly wrong, but he's 40% right. And here's the good idea that they've got that I'm going to take. And as opposed to this crazy kind of, and I think really fundamentally stupid politics we have now where we just say they're entirely wrong. In fact, they're evil and we're a hundred percent right. And immigration is just, it's, it's one of the, I think, you know, if not exhibit A, maybe exhibit A of how, you know, we wind up in these sort of self-defeating standoffs. Sorry, that's yeah. a long rant, but it really is making me a little bit crazy because there's just so much suffering, you know, on the border. It's it's really true. This is the what's work happening now. It's not working for anybody. And um, I live in New York. Uh, I try to get out into the country as much as I can to do my column, but I live in New York. And now it it, it is really true that every state city is a border city is experiencing the consequences of of um what's been happening at the border and and i keep hoping that that's going to break this log jam and and help 
get us to a place of like, okay, what is the constructive solution here? If we can move beyond just using this as a political issue to beat each other over the head with. It seems like, and you've written about this, I thought it was a good column where you talked about the, the grievance issue and the grievance wing of the of the Republican Party, uh, which the Democrats have too. Uh, but you saw it in Congress this week with just a few people um, leading the move to oust the speaker, but also in the debate. And it's it, it's like, I, I, I guess I call it the Festivus uh, debate, whatever, where everybody came out with their grievances. And, uh, but... The irony is, with the, I guess the candidates that aren't doing that. Can you can you talk a little bit about how how you frame that in your column? Yeah, there there's you know everybody plays some degree of grievance politics, but I've been really struck um, following the various Republican candidates uh, around that um, you know Donald Trump in so many ways has turned the Republican Party inside out and one way has been by embracing the idea of grievance and and victimhood you know he turns it into a point of pride he calls himself a victim which is not ronald reagan you know as you mentioned earlier it, it's just inconceivable to imagine that and he presents himself he kind of campaigns in this aura of self-pity you really heard it again when he was in macomb county michigan the other day talking about how beleaguered he is how everybody's coming after him feeling sorry for himself and turning that into a boast but there's certain republican candidates who don't play that game at all and they are the non-white republican candidates it's quite striking you know tim scott's message is very much pull yourself up by your boots bootstraps um vivek ramaswamy wrote a whole book uh, called Nation of Victims that decries this idea that he says both parties have this problem feeling sorry for them. When I last time I was out your way in Davenport, I was actually following Nikki Haley around and and in her standard town hall speech, she um, there's this moment where she lists all the problems and then she says, okay, no more whining. You know, no more feeling sorry for ourselves. Let's get to work. And the reality is, I think in the Republican Party, it, you know, it's it, it, honestly, and sorry if I'm putting this a little harshly, it's okay to talk about yourself if you're a victim, if you're white. If you're not white, it's the, the old fashioned Republicanism, which is you got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps because otherwise you veer into the territory of acknowledging that um and, and that's overstating it tim scott acknowledges that racism is still a problem in american society doesn't pretend it's not a problem but 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 um but they generally need to be able to um stick with the old kind of party ethos about um about victimhood you're listening to heartland politics on wvik quad cities npr i'm your host robin johnson and my guest this week is James Bennett, who's a senior editor at The Economist magazine. He's also author of the uh, Lexington column, been a fixture in journalism for a number of years. And uh, I'm very thrilled to have him as a guest today. We've been talking a little bit about uh, the, the big news of the week uh, of the ouster of Speaker McCarthy in the United States House of Representatives and within the context of uh, this presidential campaign, which um, is also very unsettled and um, um, some of the ramifications here, I guess... What really gets me is having followed politics a long time uh, is, I, I mean, again, there's there's the, the people uh, on, in both far uh, extremes of the party 
who don't seem to understand, I guess, that it takes compromise to get things done. Have, have, and I'm, you probably wondered this too, and I'm asking you to kind of play psychiatrist here a little bit, but is their goal just, I mean, just to, to raise their profiles on social media? Do they have an agendas? Uh, it seems like, and I think it was Boehner who, who tried to get people to understand that they represent one half of one third of the government. Uh, it's basic uh, American dem democratic fundamentals where, you know, the separation of powers. And if, if you have one house and the other house is the other party and the presidency is the other party, how are you going to get things done without compromise? Yeah, it's kind of crazy. It's all crazy, Robin. I mean, we have a system that is I think, beautifully designed to protect minority rights and individual rights. I'm all in favor of that, but we have a politics now that um, that uh, empowers minority um, clusters of politicians. It's a minoritarian kind of politics that results in, you know, the spectacle we saw this week and have witnessed really for some time in the Republican caucus where a tiny rump, you know, half a dozen, eight, um, as many as, as few as five Republicans can completely derail the entire U.S. government, and you know what's crazy in retrospect is that we we had it we we actually had a you know survey size of two really important instances where Kevin McCarthy clearly wanted to do the right thing in the end. He wanted to raise the debt ceiling. He wanted to prevent the government from shutting down. The only way he was going to get to those outcomes was doing a deal with the Democrats. You've got you know, Democratic control of the Senate, you got a Democrat in the White House, you have a very large Democratic caucus in the House, there's no way within our system that you don't have to make a compromise. Yet he pretended he wasn't going to have to do that. I, I don't understand how he was thinking of managing his own politics, but he felt like that's, and it ended in kind of a disaster um, as a result. And but yet, I'm, I'm, this small group can pretend somehow that they, despite what the majorities think, despite what most Americans think, they can get the outcomes that they want, and it works for their own politics. They can raise money nationally on the internet. They raise they raise tons of money, and and um, and they represent self safe seats. So it's all, you know, perfectly good politics for them, even though they're they're marketing a complete fantasy about the outcomes that they're going to be able to achieve. And it's 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 interesting that that, you know, recently we marked the passing of Senator Dianne Feinstein, who made headlines, may, you know, folks may have seen reference to her as far as uh, maybe being too old to hold the office and all. But she really kind of had a, a remarkable career as a woman and, and also as the type of leader that we both, I think, or maybe yearn for that's willing to to compromise to get things done. Yeah, I mean, she was she was um, elected first from the Senate in California in 1992. Back in those days, Rob, and you recall, they would still elect some Republican statewide. Pete Wilson was a governor. In fact, he'd beaten her in a race for governor. And I think she came out of very much a different idea of our politics. She was... Um, uh, had bipartisan reflexes and good relationships with the Republican Party. Um, but, and this is the thing, like, again, like, you know, sometimes you do have to stand alone or in a small group. And she had the judgment, I think, and the character 
to do that when it really mattered. I actually wrote about her this week um, in the Lexington column, looking back at the moment uh, that she, under real pressure from the Obama White House, you know, from from a part a president of her own party, um, insisted on releasing the torture report that her she was chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee then produced this exhaustive report on what the CIA had done in our names um, after the attacks of 9-11. And, and they were trying to get her not to release it publicly. And she stood up and, and saying, listen, if you do this, there's going to be blood on your hands. There's going to be violence around the world. Um, she felt like America needed to account honestly and openly with this, with this um, dark period, if we we're going to ensure that it wouldn't happen again and learn the lessons and also demonstrate to the world, you know, who we are, that we, yeah, we make mistakes, but we, we learn from them. So she, she got up in the Senate well, and she's, you know, revealed what they found and she published the report. There was no bloodshed. It did help us reckon with that, that awful period. And actually, you know, Robin was where to kind of conclude the column this week. It's sort of a hopeful it's a really hopeful lesson, I think, because we we do lose our way sometimes as a country, and up till now, at least, we've been able to find it again. And i I continue to I continue to um, believe not just hope, but believe that that is is what'll happen. So, yeah, there's there's I, I find I guess maybe it's just a function of getting older, but but a nostalgia for a lot of things in the past, including our politics. And in a similar vein, you wrote about. Um, Bobby Kennedy's presidential campaign uh, back in 1968, and uh, uh, in the context of his son and namesakes running now, but but probably about as far away from Bob, most of Bobby's views as you can get. But um, and for Republicans listening in, I think there is a broader lesson here that's interesting too of what Kennedy did that has applications for today. But uh, uh, talk a little bit about your your take on on Kennedy and why he. Why is he still such a revered figure that we look to uh, in our politics today? Yeah, I, 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 um, his campaign, which lasted only 82 days, you know, um, before he was assassinated in Los Angeles after winning the primary there, uh, is just one of these haunting you know, as a result, what ifs of American politics. I think that's one reason it continues to kind of, um, uh, at least for those of us who, you know, read the history, um, uh, I'm sorry, I, I, it just, it just, it, 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 it continues to kind of, um, I think it actually illuminates an alternative path that the nation really didn't take. And um, he campaigned in a way really no Democrat with a has um, a couple of tried, but not nearly as powerfully as he did. He set out and he had to do this because um, I'm he, he had to do this because his path, Eugene McCarthy had already gotten into the race as clearly as the anti-war candidate. This was 1968. Lyndon Johnson was president. The Vietnam War was raging. Kennedy was opposed to the war. Uh, he was deeply concerned about poverty. 
Um, he was very worried about the condition of Black Americans in the inner city, Native Americans on the reservations, and working class Americans generally. And he was able to articulate a, a democratic populist message that we really haven't heard since then. And he set out to build a kind of multiracial working class coalition that's so different than the Democratic Party we see today, which is increasingly becoming a, a party of the college educated. And um, and it was working. You know, he the first state he tested it in was Indiana, where George Wallace had very successfully campaigned just four years earlier as a Democrat. And we saw the beginnings of the of the crack up of the New Deal coalition as white workers were beginning to to defect from the Democratic Party, partly because of Vietnam, um, and but but largely because of the civil rights movement. And Kennedy's message was, no, your interests are the same as those of poor Black Americans. And his message to poor Black Americans was the same. And again, he campaigned on a on a politics that said both these things can be true. He was talking about the need for law enforcement because this was a period of riots in the inner cities in America uh, in 1968. And he had been attorney general. And on on a lot of liberals heard that as as a racist code as as many would hear it today um a law and order candidate but he always paired that message with uh, a message of racial justice that and he told white audiences audiences that you bear responsibility for this violence he was able to say both these things can be true and it was in a very effective it was a very effective message it it's it's just uh uh, amazing that you know he he did well in the Midwest, Indiana, South Dakota, Nebraska, and uh, I I think that was uh, uh, quite a uh, testing ground for him to be able to win. I, final question. I, I, yeah, I, 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 oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I just came across this great quote while I was researching that column from a Nebraska farmer. You mentioned Nebraska, and you know Kenny went to Nebraska and he'd get asked these questions about farm life and admit freely, you know, I have no idea how to milk a cow. He was obviously, he was an aristocrat, you know, from that family. And, um, but this farmer said, would told a reporter, he said, you know, it just seems like he doesn't insult our intelligence. Yeah. <laughs> and just like candidate. Yeah. Americans are smart, decent people and they deserve politicians who don't act like they're, you know, um, malicious and and not terribly bright. And Kennedy took them seriously. He was out on the out on the trail. I mean, his eloquence is just astonishing when you look back at the way he addressed people and, and it was it elevated, I think. It it, it elevated everybody. Quoting Greek poets, I mean, how audacious. Uh, but when you think about it, he did that the night he spoke in Indianapolis when Martin Luther King was killed. Uh, you just wonder the effect that ha that had on people. I mean, and and obviously you think, where is that today? Uh, yeah. We're protested, it, and and these people come out wearing jeans and Carhartt jackets. Uh, I that insults intelligence, in my view. I totally agree with you. We are a civilized people. There's nothing wrong with celebrating that fact and reminding people, you're right, he got up there and quoted Aeschylus, you know, to a crowd that was, some people in that, this was the night Martin Luther King was killed, and there were people, some people didn't know he'd been assassinated yet, others came 
to riot, you know, with Molotov cocktails. And there was no riot in Indianapolis that night. Um, there were elsewhere. Cities across this country went up in flames. But I think, um, you know, it's no small measure. He was able to reach people uh, with what he said, which was the line, and I will quote it properly, was that, you know, drop by drop, you know, despair, um, drop by drop on the human heart uh, through despair, we we eventually learn wisdom. Um, yeah. Coming from him, given the assassination of his own brother, obviously, that was a particularly powerful message. Well, James, we've run out of time. I had several other topics, but that's okay. I'd love to have you back sometime, but uh, I really appreciate you taking the time being on. Uh, very good analysis of really some, some challenging times we face. Uh, James Bennett's been my guest today on Heartland Politics. He's the senior editor with The Economist magazine and author of the Lexington column. If you don't read it, if you don't subscribe, you should. Uh, it's really some great insights into what's going on. Uh, James, thank you again for taking the time. Thanks a lot for having me, Robert. I really appreciate it. You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR.